welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. AT&T is pursuing an unprecedented strategy in its fight to save its planned $85 billion takeover of Time Warner. It's injecting politics into the antitrust case, trying to uncover evidence of political interference from the Trump administration to stop the deal. But AT&T lost the first round this week when the federal trial judge denied its request for communications logs between the Justice Department and the White House about the merger. The White House and the Justice Department have denied Trump had any involvement in the review of the merger. Joining me is Jennifer Ree, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Great to have you here, Jen. Thank you. Give us a little background. What is AT&T's defense here? Well, what they raised was called a selective enforcement defense. They were trying to say that bringing this case was not due to legitimate antitrust concerns, but instead the motive, motive was improper because President Trump simply didn't like CNN and the kind of reporting CNN was doing. And because of that, it's, it's like retaliatory or punishment rather than truly based on antitrust principles. Trump is the president, and the people he chooses to lead his departments would ordinarily be those of similar mind and thought to Mm -hmm. what he has. So why is it wrong for the president to give some input? Is it wrong? Well, it's not wrong for the president to give input, and certainly he hired the head of the antitrust division at DOJ, uh, put him in that place. But the issue is the decision needs to be based on antitrust principles and not based on retaliation. It's it's not proper for the president or his administration to retaliate against companies, especially an entity that is involved in free speech and and you know political speech, to retaliate by using the antitrust laws. And and that's really what AT and T is trying to say here. So what kind kinds of records did AT&T want? What AT&T was seeking were privilege logs. And these are just summaries, basically, of communications that are privileged, which is why you can't get the underlying communication. And they were looking for these these logs of communications between the White House um, and the Antitrust Division, as well as the White House and the Attorney General's office about this deal. And in fact, they did get some privilege logs. They did get a privilege log with written communications between the White House and the Antitrust Division. They were seeking more. So what did that log say? Was there anything incriminating in that log? We don't know exactly what that log said other than the judge saying that it didn't it was innocuous, that it didn't really show any kind of bad intent or improper motives. But you know, these logs are really vague and very general. They summarize a privileged communication and they do it in a very vague way. So it really can be difficult to even understand what that underlying communication was. So why did the judge decide AT&T wasn't entitled to this? So what the judge looked at was a Supreme Court case that set the precedent for this test. And what he said was based on this Supreme Court precedent, which really set a high bar. The AT&T and Time Warner had to show some evidence, just some scintilla, let's say, of a discriminatory effect and discriminatory intent. And to do that, they have to show that they were treated differently from a very similarly situated, other similarly situated parties. And they weren't able to do that. And, you know, in the merger context, that would be a very difficult thing to do because mergers are unique and they are meant to be assessed by the antitrust enforcers based on the unique set of facts that apply to those companies at that time. They did refer to Comcast's merger and the accommodations that were made there. Why isn't the antitrust division willing to make accommodations here? 
Well, the antitrust division generally has said that in that case, the remedy was all behavioral conditions and not structural, and that they don't believe that they should be doing that, that they're not a regulatory agency, and they don't believe they should have this relationship where they're policing the conduct of a company going forward in the marketplace, that instead it should be a free marketplace. Um, they haven't got, I'm sure there's more to it than that. Based on the data and the theory and what they're looking at, there are other reasons, but this is generally what we understand. But the judge didn't believe that that deal was alike enough to this to suggest that there was discriminatory intent. And I think that's not surprising. Uh, Judge Leon said, so while it may indeed be a rare breed of horse, it is not exactly a unicorn, which was uh, (laughs) a little poetic, at least for a judge. So how much of a setback is this for AT&T? Are they changing their trial strategy? You know, I think it's only a minor setback, honestly, because it's a win for the government. It it, it lets them not have the merits of this case, you know, be be messed up by or distracted by this this political side of it. But actually, at the end of the day, I just don't really think it matters all that much. Because let's say, even if this case was brought for improper reasons, improperly motivated, the Department of Justice has the burden of proof to show that this is likely to have an anti-competitive effect in a market, i.e. raise prices, harm innovation in a market. And if they can't show that, you know, they won't win this case. But if they show that, it's an improper merger. It's an unlawful deal. And whether it was improperly motivated or not, then won't really matter. So are they completely dropping this point? You know, June, it's unclear because what the judge did here, the DOJ asked for two things, to quash these discovery requests, which the judge agreed to do, and to strike this defense completely. Now, the judge didn't strike the defense completely, just quashed the discovery requests. So it it sort of left a little bit of a window open, although the judge did mention that he didn't feel he needed to look into the merits of this as they went forward into the trial, that he didn't need to assess the merits of this defense. Will the decision in this case at the trial stage shape antitrust decisions in the future, put the antitrust division on a different course? I think it could, yes, because this is very unusual for a vertical merger to go to trial. It is not, as the judge said, it's a rare horse and not a unicorn, because certainly there have been vertical deals in the past that have been challenged by the DOJ and needed a settlement, even some of which needed a structural uh, a settlement, a divestiture rather than just behavioral. But we haven't, we don't have legal precedent. We don't have a court decision that addresses when a vertical deal does or doesn't violate the antitrust laws. And I think we might see that here and what kind of remedy might be appropriate. So depending on the way the judge writes his decision, yes, it could. And the head of the antitrust division has said it would raise costs for consumers and reduce choice. And the merger would reshape the media landscape. Mm -hmm. So does it seem as if they have a solid argument? I will say that that's sort of the horn book possibility of harm that can come from a vertical merger. If you look at an antitrust book and you see vertical merger, how might it cause harm? That would be the way. Um, But it all depends on the data. It's a bit of an attenuated theory. They have to show that from an economic perspective, it makes sense for this merged company to raise the price of its content to other distributors because those distributors will lose subscribers and those subscribers will come over to them. them. It's not easy to prove. And this will be a trial before a judge. 
Yes. Just to judge. Just to judge. And that's <laughs> coming up in March. It's, it's, it's very exciting. It's like a movie coming out. We've been talking about it for so long. It is exciting. It's for us. I think, are we, are we weird about this? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Thanks, Jen. That's Jennifer Reese, Senior Litigation Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Supreme Court handed down several rulings today, one cutting protections for corporate whistleblowers. Joining us to talk about some of the decisions is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, the court unanimously narrowed an anti-retaliation provision in the Dodd-Frank Act. What was the basis of the court's decision throwing out a lawsuit by a former company official of Digital Realty Trust fired after complaining about alleged violations of the securities law? June, this was about uh, interpreting that Dodd-Frank Act, which was passed in, in 2010. Uh, and in particular, it does have a provision in there that is designed to protect whistleblowers. And the statute says a whistleblower is someone who files a complaint with the SEC. And Justice Ginsburg wrote the, the court's majority opinion, and she said that language means if you don't uh, complain to the SEC, uh, you're not covered by this law. She also took a look at uh, some, some uh, a Senate report that she said backed up that interpretation, and the Supreme Court's ruling on it was unanimous. This is one of two major federal protections for corporate whistleblowers. What are the differences with the whistleblower provisions in the Sarbanes-Oxley? Act. Yeah, so the Sarbanes-Oxley Act passed before before that in, in 2002. Uh, protects it, it clearly protects people who, whether or not they uh, complain to the SEC. So if you complain internally, if you complain to Congress, uh, you're protected under Sarbanes-Oxley. Um, that said, it, it, it's not if you're going to eventually try to sue. Uh, it doesn't give you as much protection that way. So you have to under Sarbanes-Oxley first file complaint with the Labor Department. You have to let that process uh, uh, play out. Um, you, you have less time to actually file a lawsuit than you would under Dodd-Frank. And the damages that you get under Sarbanes-Oxley uh, are lesser than you get in Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank lets you get up to double uh, uh, the, the amount of money you would have received in, in salary. Uh, uh, Sarbanes-Oxley provides less than that. So uh, there is still a whistleblower protection, just, just not as much. So how big a win is this for corporations? So no question it's a win. It does make it harder for some people to sue. It's going to require them to sue more quickly. Um, and, and so in general, uh, uh, company, the company side is, is happy today about this ruling. Uh, one reaction I have seen, though, is that it could actually be counterproductive in some ways because it does give people an incentive to go directly to the SEC and, and, and not uh, go through the internal compliance programs that, many, that, that most publicly traded companies have set up. How were lower courts divided on this issue when it was unanimous with the Supreme Court and it seems like it was, you know, a statutory interpretation? Yeah, so, so uh, you're right, they, they were divided on it. Um, the argument on the other side was that um, while there is a statutory definition of whistleblower, um, that that, that uh, definition didn't apply to, to this particular section of the law. Um, the argument was, look, the common sense, the, the ordinary meaning of the word whistleblower doesn't mean only somebody who, who complained to the SEC. It could be somebody who complains internally. That was the argument on the other side, but the Supreme Court just didn't buy it. So why did Justice Clarence Thomas write a separate opinion that was joined by Justices Samuel Alito and Neil Gorsuch. 
Well, he, he was sort of channeling the late Justice Scalia here. So as I mentioned, Justice Ginsburg, in her majority opinion, looked at the statutory language, and then she went on to talk about uh, what's known as the legislative history, the Senate report uh, that had some uh, language in it that supported her interpretation of the law. And Justice Thomas said, hey, the language of the statute is clear. You should have stopped your opinion right there on page five or whatever it was and not gone on and considered the legislative history. So he just wanted to make that point. Does not like legislative history being considered. Uh- a strict textual analysis. In another unanimous ruling, though Justice Elena Kagan didn't participate, the court sided with the Chicago Museum in preventing survivors of a terrorist attack from seizing Persian artifacts to help pay for a default judgment against Iran. Tell us about that. Yeah, so this stems from a 1997, uh, actually three bombing, suicide bombings in Jerusalem carried out by Hamas. The people suing are, are U.S. citizens. They were either injured or they're, they're closely related to somebody who was injured. Uh, they sued Iran, as you, as you said, got a default judgment because Iran didn't defend it. And they're trying to collect the judgment they got, which was about $71 million. And so what they were trying to do was to, to, to seize uh, these Iranian-owned artifacts that are being... Uh, uh, kept uh, and, and displayed at a museum at the University of Chicago. And so the basic question for the Supreme Court was whether those artifacts are protected under sovereign immunity. So why didn't the court say that, why did the court say that this didn't fit within the sovereign, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act? There's an exception there. Yeah, so, so this is a 1976 law that, that uh, basically says, in general, um, uh, foreign countries cannot be sued in, in the U.S., but there are a lot of exceptions to it. And uh, in, in 2008, Congress amended that law um, and uh, sort of expanded one category of exceptions uh, uh, and sort of made it more clear that, that um, just because uh, something is an is just an agency of a foreign government and 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 not the, the you know the country of Iran itself uh, that you still might be able to, to sue them under uh, and collect something from them under one of these exceptions. Anyway, the question is uh, whether that 2008 amendment actually did something much more than that and, and basically said across the board if it's the property of a foreign government and it's in the U.S. then you can uh, go to court to try to collect that uh, property to, to satisfy by a judgment, and the Supreme Court today said, no, that wasn't what the law did. It had a more narrow uh, effect dealing with those uh, foreign government agencies. That would have to be a very narrow effect. So just about uh, 30 seconds left. So, Greg, are we in the unanimous phase of the opinions where the exciting, uh, controversial cases come out late? No, no, we we actually had the other two opinions from today that we didn't talk about. We're actually both divided. One of them was five to four. One of them was six to three. And the uh, well, I'll just say the breakdowns in those weren't necessarily the ones you would expect. Uh, and one of them, Justice Gorsuch, joined the liberals of the, of the court in the majority. Oh, we'll have to talk about that next time. That's really interesting. As always, you're always interesting, Greg. Thank you so much. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr reporting on some of the cases the court handed down today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.